0: Good morning, church. Happy New Year to you. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Micah 6 8. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, just one verse, page 780, as we finish our study of the book of Micah. And while you're turning there, I want to say another thank you to our musicians. Uh, our uh, main musicians are on a much deserved vacation today, but we want to thank those who have helped us. Uh, All along here in our interim while we're waiting on God's next organist for us and also in choral ministry, we thank you for Brad Jones. Thank the Lord for Brad Jones and Krathy Priestley for their service on organ and piano. And Valetta Brinson, thank you for your ministry too. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, we've been studying through the, the minor prophets. We'll go back to Hosea after gospel priorities. And um, Micah has been a rich study for us. I think you would agree as God has unpacked for us the, the implications of this prophecy that we associate with Christmas that it comes in chapter 5, verse 2. That Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, the most unlikely place for a king to be born. And uh, Micah, we've studied again and again, has lots of implications for the kingship of Jesus for us. What does it mean for Jesus to be our king? We've seen him as our triumphant king, our compassionate king, our, our shepherd king, and so forth. I want us to go back we've studied to the end of the of the book at uh, christmas eve concluding with that tremendous promise that he would show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham that he would have compassion on us and tread our iniquities underfoot i want us to go back however to chapter 6 verse 8 this very famous text uh, that is also the spine for all the ethical demands and commitments of Scripture. You know, when Jesus was asked by the religious authorities, he was asked by the religious authorities on one occasion, what is the greatest commandment? And he said, it is to love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. He, he wasn't giving two for one. He was saying that, It is to love God. That is the greatest commandment. And the necessary implication of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is that you love the people he's created in his image as you love yourself. Now, another occasion, Jesus was exposing the hypocrisy of those religious leaders who were asking him this question, trying to trip him up. And he said uh, he pronounced woes on them. He pronounced curses or threats on them for their hypocrisy. <clears throat> he said, "You you love to to keep these precise laws that you have mostly invented, but your heart isn't in it. You disobey the spirit of the law. You love, for instance, to be so precise in the way you tithe your." Your uh, spices and so forth, but you neglect. Jesus said, "The weightier matters of the law, meaning the heart of God's law. The heart of God's law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself." So, what is he adding? He's not. He is these. He says, "Here are the forms that that love will take. Three forms that love will take in your service to God and other people." It will be justice and mercy and faithfulness. Humility here uh, translated, but faithfulness, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The weightier matters of the law. And those are repeated in other places in in the minor prophets. We'll see it in Hosea. These are going to be the terms, he says, Hosea says, these are going to be the terms of God's marriage with you. He is pledging his justice, mercy, and faithfulness to you and expects you to reciprocate. It's the consistent, these are the consistent coordinates, guiding lights for ethical living, for fulfilling the law of love before God and for other people, justice, mercy, faithfulness. I've sneaked up on you with the title of this message. I said, Jesus is with us. Well, he is with us. You know that. And he always will be. But I want to ask, I want us to ask this question, especially in the coming year. Will we be where Jesus is? Jesus is with us. But where will we be where Jesus is? is, how do we know where he is? Wherever justice, mercy, and faithfulness are demanded. Let's read the text for context. We begin in verse six of Micah chapter six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? This is the, the wearying prayer. The complaint of the people of God. You you are so demanding of us. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? God responds with his consistent command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your neighbor as yourself in these ways. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly or faithfully with your God. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord. Open our hearts and speak to us. Show us where you are, what you are doing, and may you enable us by your spirit to join you in that work. Thank you for the privilege of it. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together, amen. My grandparents on my father's side many, many years ago, went to the Mississippi County Fair, Northeast Arkansas, and they lost track of their children. It wasn't hard to do. They had 16 of them. They really didn't care where 15 of them were. There was one, however, they were concerned about. My Uncle Harold had been afflicted by polio when he was a child, and and, uh, he uh, eventually... Uh, regained strength in his legs. But at that time, he he was mostly crippled, not able to... He was really wobbly on his legs. He'd built up quite an upper body, though, because he was determined that people not feel sorry for him. He was determined not to get picked on, and he was determined not to lose a fight, which became sort of an obsession with him and a tendency on his part to provoke fights where even if there was not one. My grandparents went to the middle of the, the, the fairgrounds and it, it, where a crowd was gathering. There was a boxing ring there. The boxers were taking a break. And the announcer came over the loudspeaker and he said, We're going to give a prize, a big prize to whoever can stay in this ring with this next contestant. A bear. They brought a bear into the ring and they they said, we're going to give a big prize to whoever can stay for five minutes in the ring with this bear. My grandmother turned to my grandfather and said, you don't think he would try that, do you? Just then they saw a man pulling himself, a a boy pulling himself up into the ring laboriously working his way up the ropes and then hurling himself into the bear with the first punch and then flying out of the ring (laughs) at the hands of the bear. Not proposing bear baiting. Christians have always opposed bear baiting. We were the ones who opposed that and my uncle became a great opponent of bear baiting after that encounter he had with the bear. Point is that you could find my uncle by locating the fight. Where was the fight? There was my uncle. One of our elders Emeritus recently shared with me that he's reading John Meacham's new book on Abraham Lincoln. And in the introduction to the book, Meacham says that though Lincoln was not an Orthodox Christian, he, he had been reared in a Baptist anti-slavery uh, uh, theology, hadn't taken it all to heart. But though he wasn't an Orthodox Christian, he did have an attraction to the transcendent, transcendent morality of the Bible, expressed, Meacham said, in Micah 6.8. He's shown you a man what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. And Meacham calls these, this verse, elegant injunctions, but staggeringly difficult to follow. To follow Jesus requires finding where the fight is for justice and for mercy and for faithfulness. And it will always be a fight, a fight against our own indwelling sin, our own flesh. It'll be a fight against our culture. It'll be a fight against the natural propensities of the whole human race because these are the character traits of God, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Wherever there is a need for those acts of love, there Jesus is. And to go there is to join him in that work. It is a fight. And we might adapt a passage in the New Testament. Will Jesus, when he returns, find us in the fight or find us in retreat? Justice, mercy, mercy. Faithfulness. What are they? If we're going to join him in this work, what are these acts of love? Justice is one of those words that has been hijacked by the extreme left and extreme right of our culture. And so some have backed off of using that word because they don't want to be accused of false things. But we will not, those who preach God's word must not back off of using a word that is used to describe even the character of God. Justice is a translation of the Hebrew word mishpat, a couple of Hebrew words in the Bible uh, for this uh, concept and uh, I have tried in numerous ways through the years to describe and to define this concept in Scripture for us so that we recover it for God's glory rather than concede it to those fear mongers and the extremes of our culture. And here is another attempt to define justice as it occurs in the Bible. We could say it's the God given rules. That embody proper relationships between persons. God given rules, that is from Scripture, that embody proper relationships between persons. Cicero, the, the second century Greek uh, ethicist, said famously that justice is rendering to every person what is his or her due. But that wasn't an invention. Solomon had said the same thing many years before. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27. He says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Proverbs three twenty-seven. Paul said something similar in Romans chapter 13. Oh, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So if we put it together, we we ask what are the God-given rules for this person in this relationship and how we may we use whatever power, whatever influence... Whatever advantage, whatever resource God has given us in order to achieve, find, help that person realize justice. Now, we are accustomed to talking about rights and what someone is owed or what, uh, what an inalienable or unalienable right is for someone made in the image of God. And uh, there are all kinds of things that are put forth as rights that are not necessarily rights. But the most helpful I've ever encountered is Nicholas Walterstorff's list of rights as he finds them in the Ten Commandments. Nicholas Waltersdorf, a Dutch Christian, a philosophy professor at Yale, or retired, uh, <clears throat> formerly at Calvin as well, he said there are three forms of rights, three categories of rights that are alluded to and protected by the Ten Commandments. The first set of rights is freedom rights in in Commandments 1 through 5. The freedom of access to worship, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and freedom of, he calls it movement. I don't understand that exactly, but he's talking about the Fifth Commandment. We might say the freedom of civil government or civil civility, the freedom of of respect for one's role, both as you have a role and as you have someone in a role of authority over you. Second category of rights we could call protective rights, the right to life, the right to marriage, the upholding of marriage and and by implication, security for children, the right to property, the right to a good name. And then the 10th commandment, sustenance rights, protection of food, clothing, shelter, and healthcare. These are rights, these are uh, aspects of justice that every human being made in the image of God, has a right to because God has endowed us with such rights as ones he has made to reflect his image and to flourish in the creation that he has made. And yet, because there is a fallen world, not everyone has access to those things. Not everyone is protected. Some of those rights are, are jeopardized. Oppression keeps some from experiencing those rights equally. And so it is the responsibility of those who have power or influence or or access to resources to pursue those for others. It stands to reason that every, that Christians should be the foremost in advocating for true justice for those made in the image of God. Not waiting for somebody else to stick their neck out not waiting for some popular cultural figure to do something, we jump on the bandwagon with them. But Christians having God's word, this rich and full description of the dignity and beauty and glory with which he has created human beings. The, 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 the purpose that he has given for the creation, that Christians should be mining the scriptures, not looking for how we can protect our own rights and live behind a citadel and in cowering, hoping that no one will take our stuff, but rather with the boldness and the courage of the gospel of Jesus Christ saying, where is this being threatened in God's world? This is my father's world. Where is this being threatened in the image bearers? God is beautifully reflected of himself in this world. And where can I bring my resources to bear to achieve it for the glory of God? I read recently about three communities in Houston, historic Black communities: the Fifth Ward, Kashmir Gardens, and Trinity Houston Gardens. From 1911 to 1984, railroads were were treating timbers uh, for the building of railroad tracks. Railroad ties, and to keep them from rotting, they would they would soak them in creosote, a tarry substance that that uh, noxious, nauseous, and and toxic fumes, and leaving dioxins in the in the soil for decades, decades, almost a hundred years. Christians in those communities have been complaining about the drainage problems, air pollution, poor water quality, trains blocking intersections so they can't get to work, blowing their horns in the middle of the night. They're always ignored. Until finally 2,000 Christians from two or three churches gathered together And conducted the scientific research, got the attention finally of the health department, the state health department, who noticed uh, an inordinate number of cases of esophageal cancer, lung cancer, lymphoblastic leukemia in children. And agreed, something is wrong and needs attention two pastors in particular led their led the way and they did it in the name of Jesus Christ not saying that the gospel is a social gospel but they did say the gospel has social implications in fact one pastor said the church has to preach the gospel and it also has to take care of the flock the congregation Another pastor said, it is the church's responsibility. When you sit in these neighborhoods and you don't offer the things the neighborhood needs, you're doing a disservice to your church. In terms of the theology of it all, I know that God gave me a purpose and I've tried to walk and work in that purpose. My church tells me repeatedly, whatever it is you're working on, we will support you in that. They preach the gospel, how you get saved how you get justified before God and your sins forgiven and how you have a reconciled relationship with God and how do you go to heaven. They also preach the implications of the gospel which is to love those who are not being heard and to advocate for them, to have equal treatment and dignity even when it comes to dumping garbage and corrupting a society leading to health Concerns. This is the way the Christians have always been. It's the way the church has been. This is justice after the character of God. And we must and we get to be at the forefront of it, announcing shalom to the world, a kingdom that comes to make all things beautiful. will you be in this coming year where Jesus is? Then it will mean asking, where are people not being treated justly, equally, beautifully, with dignity? Join him there in that fight. The second aspect of love, the second form of love is one we talk a lot about, it's mercy. We talk a lot about it because we talk a lot about Exodus chapter thirty-four, six and seven, where where uh, Moses says, "Show me your glory. Show me who you are in your essence." And God says, in short, in chapters thirty-three and thirty-four, "I am hesed. I am loving kindness or covenant love or mercy. These are various translations of the same word. I am mercy." Now it's helpful to get an idea of what mercy is, it's helpful to distinguish it from justice, what we've just been looking at. And uh, here is the way an Old Testament, a a Hebrew scholar uh, says that mercy is distinct from justice. There are five characteristics of mercy. Mercy copes with an emergency for which custom and contract provide no norm mercy copes with a crisis for which there are no written standards no playbook it's just seeing a need and running toward it and saying how can I help secondly mercy is an expression of love and generosity which a person is not expected to do Number three, mercy is behavior that is surprising. Number four, mercy is not owed. The giver of mercy is not to be blamed, will not be blamed for not giving it. It's not owed, not expected, but it comes as an act of love. And mercy creates covenant commitment. It is not obligated by contract that's illustrated in the story of Hosea. Sorry, it's a a spoiler alert here, but the book of Hosea is about a prophet who took a prostitute for his wife. And he said to this one who was not deserving of it, as God was saying to his people, I am going to be just and merciful and faithful to you, though you have never been and never will be to me in response. It's surprising. It's astonishing love. To love in a surprising and ingenious way, another Hebrew scholar says, that is mercy. We love talking about God's mercy for us, don't we? I do. I love to talk about How my where my sin has abounded, God's love does much more abound, His grace does much more abound. But when it comes to showing that kind of mercy and forgiveness to another, that's difficult. Especially when the sin, when the offence is egregious and horrific and violent and cruel. In 2006, we know now it's become famous to us. A man went into an Amish schoolhouse and shot 10 children, killing five of them between the ages of seven and 13. Within hours, those Amish parents went to the surviving members of that man's family and showed them love, inquired as to their condition and said, we forgive. They've continued to preach that message, we forgive. It's woven into their theology of self-renunciation because they say, even in their confession of faith, that Jesus, they must Renounce revenge because Jesus renounced it for us and gave himself as a sacrifice for us while we were yet his enemies. In Tim Keller's latest book on forgiveness, I think, humbly say it's his greatest. He Talks about a, a scholarly study that occurred four years after that, 2010, in which the scholar said that kind of forgiveness can never be taught or imitated in American culture because we have sold our souls to selfishness. That the Amish people are unique. It's a shame they didn't see it possible in other Christians. Forgiveness. Mercy is astonishing. Why wouldn't it be? If it's so astonishing to think of it for ourselves, why would it not be astonishing in the way we show it for others? And yet I have to say, brothers and sisters, as your pastor, I find this the hardest point of the gospel. The wounds we have suffered in our culture, the wounds we have suffered in our congregation just in the last year, I have to tell you, it's hard for me to think of renouncing revenge. It's hard for me to apply this text in forgiveness. These are the kinds of applications and implications that frequently I wrestle with on Saturday and say, Lord, could you please give me another sore throat and let somebody else preach today? Because I will be a hypocrite if I have to preach these things. But this is the way, this is what we're about. I'm not telling you to follow my example. I come into the pews with you and I say, this is what Jesus is telling us to do. And there's no way that we can do it. There's no way your pastor can practice it. Unless the Holy Spirit enables us, it's just that hard. Why would it not be hard when it's a supernatural gospel? He's shown you what is good, what what is astonishing. It is not just justice, it is mercy. The kind we have experienced that must be imitated. The Amish confession says, and moreover, we must pray for our enemies, feed and refresh them wherever they are hungry or thirsty, and thus convince them by well-doing and overcome all ignorance. May God enable us. And then finally, faithfulness. Faithfulness is unwavering maintenance of Love and justice, the Jesus that Brad told us is the same yesterday, today and forever is this one who is faithful always to show justice and mercy to us though we are never consistent in being just or deserving mercy. He called himself the faithful God at the beginning of of the journey out of Egypt across the wilderness into the promised land. And he says later in his word that his faithfulness, his faithful mercies are new every morning. There is never a shadow of turning with him. Great is your faithfulness. And he enables us to reproduce that faithfulness. He reproduces his faithfulness through us in relationships. First Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. And by means of our union with Christ, first Corinthians four, one and two. And Paul says, Submit your bodies, submit the members of your bodies as instruments of righteousness and faithfulness to him, submit every part of you to him. Romans six, that he might sanctify you through and through, and your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless or faithful. Until the coming and appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Thessalonians 5. I read a few years ago about a Bible school in West Africa, West Africa Bible College. Not Africa Bible College that we're familiar with, West Africa Bible College. Greg Fisher, Gregory Fisher, is the name of the professor who was teaching Bible class on on last things, on the on the coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And he was in First Thessalonians, and uh, he was he was discussing the, the announcement of Christ's return. And, you know, we, we we read this at a gravesite often that that uh, that at the last trumpet. A trumpet will sound at the last day, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And there'll be a great shout from heaven, announcing the arrival of Jesus. One of Gregory Fisher's students raised his hand and said, uh, "What is he going to shout when Jesus comes? What is he going to shout?" and Gregory Fisher did what all of us teachers do when we don't know the answer. We say, "Uh, what are you trying to ask? I'm trying to ask just what I said. What is he going to shout? Dr. Fisher was tempted to say, you know, we can't press the text too far. We can't go beyond the details of scripture. But instead he remembered One of his other students who was a high school principal apprehended by a two-man death squad after several hours of terror and torture, he killed him, tried to kill him. He narrowly escaped, hiding in the bush. They went on to kill the rest of his family. He thought about the beggars he passed every day He thought about the poverty, the robberies, the abuses of human beings all around him. The man asked again, Reverend, you have not answered my question. When he returns, what is he going to shout? Dr. Fisher said, When he returns, he will shout, Enough! Enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough of lives trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease enough time enough someday Jesus will come with that shout enough and in the meantime let us be found where the fight is that he is waging toward that day of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Let's pray together. Oh well, Lord Jesus, I thank you for these fellow believers, the long tradition of this church, the long faithfulness of this church in pursuing justice and mercy and faithfulness. We can be weary in well doing, and we can be intimidated. We can we can be frightened, frightful of the darkness. Can feel overwhelmed, want to give up. But O oh Lord, on this first day of the 2023, we come before You as Your disciples who are weak. Your disciples who are prone to fear. Your disciples who are not naturally courageous. Some here, Lord, who are not even believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We come, we bow before you and pray you would convert us, remake us, refresh us, and help us to join you in this noble battle. So on that day when you return, you would find us faithful and merciful and just. And we would hear from you. Well done. Good and faithful servants. Help us in Jesus name. Amen.